0: Good afternoon, church. Good afternoon. It's always a privilege to be able to preach from God's word, uh, but even more so today uh, by as I'm doing it as a candidate for the role of the pastor here at Redemption. Now, I just want to say up front, I'm extremely grateful for this church and grateful for the encouragement I've received from so many of you guys for the last couple of weeks. Now, two weeks ago, I preached from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and I'm planning to use uh, the second half of John 4 as my my candidate sermon, but before we uh, jump back into that passage, I want to start off with a question specifically for the married men in our church. I want to see if your experience in marriage has been any any similar, somewhat similar to mine at least. Lauren and I have been married for a little bit over six years now. And we have this really fun thing in our relationship where I misplace things and I lose them. And then Lauren has this ability to make them magically reappear reappear out of thin air. Anybody else have a wife who's also a wizard and can find things that nobody else can? Okay, Okay. this this is good. I, I feel very encouraged. I'm not alone here. Right, I'll be looking for my keys for like 20 minutes Four seconds into Lauren's search, but what do you know? There they are, on the kitchen table, right where I told you. It doesn't matter. She is always going to be right where she looks. A few months ago, I was trying to find my AirPod. I was in a hurry I was trying to get somewhere. I asked Lauren if she'd seen them. She said, hey, well, you should check your car. I think we saw them there. And I informed her, honey, I've already looked there twice. They are not in my car. So she said, well, I'll go check your car. So <laughs> i a little bit of noise. I like, already right, check my car. You don't need to go do it. But I've played this game a lot of times, and I always lose. So I figured it was better for me to go check my car before I had to be embarrassed and listen to her make fun of me for not seeing them. And guess where I found them? In your car. Sitting right on the front seat. They weren't covered up. They were right there. They were right from my face, and I was looking right past them. So naturally, I went inside, I told Lauren I found up and it's not what I did. I went in quietly and dropped the issue entirely. And I don't know if she was sparing my feelings or if she got too, too distracted with something else, but I didn't get any fun of for that, so I'll take it as a win. Now, as cool as it could be if my wife actually did make things appear out of thin air, the reality is that sometimes we simply fail to see what is right in front of our face. Usually this happens like we're in a hurry or, you know, we're too too preoccupied with other things. An important phone call, trying to get out the door. When your mind is occupied with other things, we have a tendency to miss what is right in front of us. This is what we see from the disciples' day in the second half of John 4. They're so preoccupied with other tasks that they fail to see a much more important task that is staring them in the face. They get distracted and they lose sight of the work that they have been called to. And so Jesus has to point out to them and tell them, literally, "It is right here, open up your eyes and see it. And in the same way, if we're not intentional, we will overlook what is sitting right in front of us just like the disciples did. So let's begin in John four. We're gonna be in verses 27 through 42, but to start, We're just going to read verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her?
1: So the woman left her
0: water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So in the first half of John 4, we saw a conversation between Jesus and an adulterous Samaritan woman. And through this conversation, Jesus points out the insufficiency of this world and anything it offers to satisfy us. Because ultimately, he is the one true source of lasting satisfaction. And we saw last week that that true satisfaction comes through right relationship with God. Now, Jesus' disciples, they return just as Jesus is revealing his identity to this woman. He tells her that he is indeed the Messiah. And we did talk briefly last time about how socially improper it was for a a Jewish man to speak with uh, a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. But this is magnifying because Jesus is not just a Jewish man, right? He is a rabbi. That is how his disciples see him. And some rabbis in that day, certainly not all of them, I wouldn't say that this is the majority of you, but there's a good number that, that thought for a rabbi to speak with women, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time. And at worst, it, it was a misuse of time that took you away from studying the Torah and could lead you into great sin. Now, Jesus certainly wouldn't have agreed with those sentiments, I doubt the disciples did either. But given that that social background you can understand why the disciples were so surprised when they came to find Jesus speaking with this woman. But the woman leaves, right? She she hurriedly makes her way back to the town to tell everybody about this man that she met. And she tells them that this man knew everything that she ever did. Now she's probably summarizing a bit here. They didn't have that long of a conversation. But she asks these people, could this, could this be the Christ? And I don't think that question indicates doubt on her part as much as she's she's kind of asking the question to draw them in, Like, like, can you believe this? Could this really be him? Could this be the one that we are waiting for? And so she uses this question to kind of pique their curiosity, and upon hearing her testimony, they respond. They say, yeah, maybe this is. Let's go and see this man. Now, this woman's response is extremely significant. Remember who this woman was. This is an adulterous Samaritan woman. She was so riddled with guilt and shame that she's actively avoiding interaction with other people. We talked about that last time. She's coming out to the well in the middle of the day so she can avoid interacting with other women or other people. So she makes this water because she needs water get thirsty, She has to get that water. But she's avoiding people. But the one that she needs Brings about a drastic transformation within her. Look at how this woman changed once she she met Jesus. She came out for the sole reason of filling up her water, but now she returns home without her water jug. She leaves it there with Jesus. She doesn't give a second thought. She is so intent. I'm going to tell people about this man who offered her living water. She came out to draw water, but left with living water. She was hiding from the world, but now she's seeking the very people she was hiding from. She's no longer dragging that guilt and that shame behind her. Now instead of hiding, she's making it her mission to seek out everyone else so they too can meet Jesus and receive the new life that He office. So what we're seeing here is this drastic transformation. The first point, if you're taking notes, is that knowing Jesus, motivates us to share him with the world knowing jesus motivates us to share him with the world this woman didn't want anything to do with anybody else but once she meets jesus she just goes and starts preaching the whole town and that's pretty normal for other response it, right when we find something that, that brings us joy what's the first thing we do we tell people about it right you get engaged you have a baby what do you do you post on social media, you want people to celebrate with you, you want to invite people to rejoice with you. If you find a fun video, you think it's funny? You want other people to send, or you got to send it to other people so they can laugh along with you. You find a good book or a TV show that keeps you on the edge of your seat, you go to your friends because you want them to experience it with you. How much more true should this be about our relationship with Jesus? If our relationship with Jesus truly satisfies our deepest needs in this life, and it does, how can we not desire to tell everyone else about him? I don't believe that you can truly know Jesus and not have a desire for others to also know him. But when we recognize the extent of our, of our sinfulness and the depth of God's grace and mercy toward us in Christ, it should stir within us a, a compassion for others who, who need that same compassion and mercy just as badly as we do. And that's what we're seeing from this woman here. When we come to Jesus, we are transformed into something totally new. The Holy Spirit within us changes us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Right, if Jesus desires it that all people know and accept the grace and salvation available to them, how can we know Jesus and not desire the very same thing? So, if you have no desire to see others come to Jesus in faith and repentance, that's a huge problem. Now, I recognize that many things prevent us often from, from acting on that desire. That's not the same thing as not having the desire to begin with. When we come to know Jesus, when we taste the salvation, the satisfaction that He offers, it creates a desire to spread the good news of the gospel, to see it take roots in the lives of others. But, if we are not intentional, we allow ourselves to become so distracted to the point that we never act on that desire. Open your Bibles again. Let's keep reading, and we're going to read verses 31 through 37. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the same holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. <clears throat> As a woman is returning to her town to tell all of her uh, the people she knows about the Lord, there's another conversation happening between Jesus and his disciples. And just like the Samaritan woman in the first half of the chapter, the disciples kind of miss the point. Because Jesus is doing something similar. We talked about this last time. Right? In chapter 3, when he's talking with Nicodemus, Jesus takes a, a physical thing, in that context it's birth, and he uses it to explain a spiritual truth. And then he does the same thing with the woman at the well, talking about, water versus living water. And now he's doing it here with the disciples using food versus spiritual food. So once the leaves they, they begin to urge Jesus, hey, Jesus, you gotta eat some food. And this is, again, a pretty natural response for them. They're just trying to help. They like Jesus. They stopped at the well because Jesus was tired. They went off to get food for him. Makes sense that he's hungry. They've walked probably around 40 miles or so to get there. And, and john 8 tells us that. that's why they were coming the first they went out to get food so they come back they're urging jesus to eat that food and jesus tells them well I, I already have food food that you do not know about and i love the disciples reactions they're just so locked in on physical food they're looking at each other like it was you like where did he get this food from i didn't get food how did he get this food and so as they're trying to figure out where jesus's secret food came from jesus begins to explain and he said that his Food is to do the will of God, to accomplish the work of the Father. In other words, doing the will and work of God is more satisfying to me than any physical meal. And Jesus is saying this, presumably, on an empty stomach. after miles and miles of walking. You guys know that a juicy bacon cheeseburger tastes much better when you're already starving. It hits a little bit different. When you've been working hard for hours, and you've built up that appetite, that food is just a little bit more satisfying than usual. But doing the will of God, accomplishing His work, is even more satisfying than a delicious meal on an empty stomach. Jesus is saying that, that obeying the will of the Father, that is true food. That is where you'll find true satisfaction. Jesus probably has in mind here uh, either Job 23 or Deuteronomy 8. You're probably familiar with Deuteronomy 8, right? Man is not lived by bread alone, but by the word that comes from the mouth of God. We talked two weeks ago about uh, how we find true satisfaction through right relationship with God and living a life of obedience before Him. The satisfaction that comes through obedience to God is far greater far greater than anything you will find here on this earth. This is very familiar to what he said to the Samaritan woman. Jesus is is making the same point here. He's just using a different metaphor With, with the woman. His purpose was a little bit different though. He was telling her that you need me. You need Jesus in order to be satisfied. He was showing her that the world not satisfied, and by believing in him she could have true satisfaction in the relationship with God. But with the disciples, his purpose is not to make them recognize the insufficiency of the world. It's not to get them to turn to him in faith and repentance. These are his disciples. They already follow him. They already believe in him. John 2 tells us when he turned the water into wine, his disciples believed in him. So Jesus isn't telling them so that they might believe He's telling them because they're overlooking the work that God had for them. They're so preoccupied with with the physical food, going and getting the food, they couldn't see what was right in front of their faces. There was an entire town of people ready to respond, to believe in Jesus, but all they could think about was food. And that this is the point that Jesus is making becomes clearer in verses 35 through 38. In verse 35, Jesus poses a question, to his disciples. He says, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? And some people think this is just an indication of kind of the timing of the events. Uh, Jesus says there's four months to harvest. It must be around January, December. For a number of reasons, I think it's unlikely to be telling us the time. I'm not going to get into all of that. It's more likely that what Jesus is doing here is using a common phrase, a common proverb from that day. And it emphasized kind of that waiting period that need for patience in between sowing and harvest. Right, the idea is that you can't hurry along the process. Once that seed is sown, you have to be patient and you have to wait until those crops grow in. But Jesus says to the disciples, look again, lift up your eyes, see that the harvest is not four months away. It's happening right now. This isn't a time for rest. This is a time for urgency because the fields are white, the crops are ready to be collected. And this text doesn't say, this is just my own imagination as I read through this story. It is that Jesus is probably directing the disciples' attention. He's saying, look, look down in the road. look at the horde of Samaritans that are coming to see Jesus. He's pointing out to them that there is a spiritual harvest that has already begun and there is work that needs to be done. As we move to verse 36, Jesus then makes another agricultural reference here. But he's actually referring back to the book of Amos. And I do want to read from there. We're going to read verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 13. If you don't want to turn there, that's okay. It's a, it's a quick one. But I'm going to read that for us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treasure of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The prophet Amos here is prophesying about the restoration of Israel. And in this verse, he's speaking of the incredible abundance that will be enjoyed by God's people at this time. And in this prophecy, we're seeing a coming together of sowing and reaping. This is like an incredible picture of those. We can't fathom the size of this harvest. Like, the one harvesting the crops, he can't get them up fast enough because the one sowing the seeds, he's, he's right on his heels. He's planting more. And as soon as he's done, the grapefruit, he's coming through. He's picking up those crops. And it's a cycle of they just plant and sow. Plants are, yeah, sow and reap, sow and reap. And they cannot pluck these crops up fast enough. The fruitfulness of this harvest blows away the A farmer could not fathom this kind of harvest. But Jesus is not speaking of a physical harvest. This is a spiritual harvest. And when Jesus speaks of the sower and and, and the reaper in verse 36, uh, I don't think he has a single individual in mind here. I don't think we need to press the metaphor that far. Certainly in the context here, the immediate surrounding context, both Jesus and the woman act as as a reaper, gathering uh, fruit for eternal life. Jesus through his conversation with the woman, and the woman by going and telling her town about Jesus. But if we press this metaphor too far, try to assign meaning to every tiny detail, I think we're gonna end up missing the point that Jesus is making. Through his conversation with the woman, through this metaphor of sowing and reaping, and, and through this reference to the incredible prosperity prophesied in the Book of Amos, Jesus is telling them, this abundant harvest is right now. There's a harvest of people, a harvest of souls for eternal life that is ripe for the picking. They are ready to respond. We can't imagine the extent of this harvest. It blows away all expectations. But it doesn't matter whether you're the one sowing the seed or reaping the crops. There's cause for great celebration. But like that's the point of being made here. It's the readiness and the abundance. Who the sower is and who the reaper is, it doesn't matter all that much. They're both working toward the same goal and the same harvest, and they can rejoice together. Now, verse 37, again, Jesus is continuing with these farming metaphors. If you're a farmer, you probably love today. I'm not a farmer, so I don't. No, I still love it. Verse 37, it, it kind of reaches forward. It's summarizing verse 38 for us. He says, One sows and another reaps. This is another common proverb in their day, but it was actually a negative statement. It was used to point out the unfairness of life, the incongruity of life. I'm to stop for a moment. I want you to, to think about your time in school. If you're a student, alright, it's easy. If Some of you other people just might be asking you to dig deep, but you can do it. Uh, At some point in your schooling, you you probably had to do some kind of group project. You probably either loved or hated group projects depending on the kind of student you were. If you were a lazy student, that was the dream. You didn't have to work. The smart kids would do everything, you'd get all the credit for it. That was the best week of class when you got to do a group project. If you were a smarter student, the more dedicated student, it was extremely frustrated. you had a lazy bum in your group who wasn't pulling weight, and then he got credit for all of your hard work. Now, I've been both the lazy bum and the more dedicated student, so I can see both sides here. More recently, I've been the dedicated student, and so I do not enjoy group projects. It's frustrating when somebody doesn't do the work, and you've got to pick up the slack form, and then they get credited for your hard work, that's the point of the proverb that Jesus is using here. That, that captures the thrust of it. Some people work really, really hard, and they're rewarded very little. Others work very, very little, and they get to, to receive the rewards of others for work. This metaphor it kind of pits the sower and the reaper against one another, but Jesus is kind of flipping the script here. Right? He's not using this in a negative way. He's saying it's true, but in a different way than you're probably thinking. Because those who reap and and those who uh, sow, they're working together to to accomplish this same goal. Certain people have worked very hard to prepare this harvest, and now you're coming in late to the game to reap those crops, but that's okay because you have a shared goal. Jesus tells us and says, you can labor for this. You didn't do the groundwork. You didn't plow the field and sow these seeds. Other people labored to prepare this field to sow the seeds. And the others. you are probably referring to, to all the faithful people that came before me. The prophets, John the Baptist, and Jesus himself, right? Through his, his ministry, death and resurrection, certainly is included of those who were preparing for this harvest. But now Jesus' disciples have entered into their labor. They benefit from the work of those who faithfully served before them, but now they have to do their part in reaping the harvest. And this command is not only given to the twelve, it is given to every one of us who calls ourselves a disciple of Jesus. You and I are also living in this period of great spiritual harvest. Brothers and sisters, we have been sent to gather fruit for eternal life. Number two, if you're you're taking notes, Jesus has sent His disciples to reap the harvest. Jesus has sent His disciples to reap the harvest. This is something that we as Christians need to take seriously. This harvest it is of the utmost importance. God used many faithful people before the church was formed to prepare for this, but the church. It's God's primary vehicle for reaching, for reaping the spiritual harvest. We've been called into this labor of sharing the gospel, introducing people to Jesus so that they might repent and believe. It's a weighty responsibility, but it's also an incredible privilege. And like the disciples in this chapter, sometimes we need to be reminded. The disciples were missing the harvest. There were all these people around ready to believe but they were so preoccupied with the physical food they didn't see what was right under their nose. It was a whole town ready to respond to Jesus but they missed it. And it's not that what they were doing was wrong. What they were doing was good. They were trying to find food for Jesus. They were trying to find food for anybody. Like, that's the best you can do is for Jesus. But even good things can prevent us from Going and telling people about Jesus. And I think that's the danger for most Christians and churches. I don't know any Christian, any church that would say evangelism doesn't matter, that it's unimportant. But many of us get so preoccupied with other good things in our life, we never stop to intentionally consider how we might tell others the good news about Jesus. And I, I get it, we're busy people. We have jobs, we have kids, and, and it would be wrong for us not to to give the proper time and attention to those responsibilities. But we can do that and still be intentional about sharing the gospel, of telling others this incredible salvation, this incredible satisfaction that's available to them. And pray and ask Lord to open doors with your coworkers for you to tell them the good news about Jesus. Maybe you're at practice every week, driving your kids around, great. The parents of your kids, they need Jesus as well. How can you start talking with them and building relationships with them so that you can lead them to Jesus and tell them about how good he is and what he has done for them? All of us are busy. All of us have many good and many important things that require our time and energy, but we cannot let those keep us from being obedient to this command. And I know that this is not an easy task for many of us, for one reason or another, we, we struggle to share the gospel, but we usually psych ourselves out. Like, we come up with the most insane scenario in our head, like, this is gonna go so badly, they're gonna hate me, they might try and stab me, because they're so angry that I told about Jesus. It never goes that bad. But we psych ourselves out, and we kind of freak ourselves out, so that we never actually take that step But But sharing the gospel, it doesn't have to be as difficult as we make it. And we're gonna finish reading the passage here. But we're going to see just how simple it can be to share the gospel. So turn with me one more time, and let's look at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the Lord's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we got the disciples out of the picture now for the rest of this passage. We return to the Samaritan woman. She has gone about sharing her testimony with the people of her town. This woman, who was previously hiding from everybody, goes to share her testimony with all of these people, and they believe her. That's like a crazy detail here. They they know her background. She's hiding from them. They know what she's been into, but they still believe her. In this context, she's one of the most unbelievable people you could find. But she simply tells these people who Jesus is, and they listen. Then they drop what they're doing. They all come out in droves to see Jesus for themselves. And then upon their request, he stays with them, he teaches them. Many more believe as well. And they tell them, well, well, now it's not just based on your testimony, but we have seen him for ourselves. We know he is the Savior of the world.
1: So they believe him in testimony, but their belief is reinforced when
0: so they actually meet and see Jesus for themselves. They understand who he is and who he claims to be. And the title that they use here, I think, it is very important because it emphasizes the worldwide scope of Jesus' mission. He didn't come to save the Jews. Like mean, he did, but he came to save much more than that. He didn't just come to save people like you or me. He came to save all people. He demonstrates that in going to the Samaritans in the first place. So all of this kind of foreshadows the the, the challenge the disciples would get later to take the gospel to the nations and to the ends of the earth. But we should consider as well, are we only looking to those who are like us? Do we only try to find those that are most comfortable around us or are the easiest to talk to? the gospel is for all people, regardless of ethnicity or culture or background or anything else. In this passage, we see Jesus motivates us to tell tell others about him, and not only that, but he's commanded us to do so. And now we see that God uses the testimony of his people to bring others to faith. That's number three. God uses the testimony of his people to bring others to faith. So many of us do not feel equipped when it comes to evangelism. But that's just not true. Like, like who is this woman? What made her more qualified than any of you? She's not an apostle, she's not a disciple. This isn't Paul we're talking about. She's a simple woman, transformed by her faith in Jesus. She was a Christian for like six minutes and then a whole time to Jesus. Like, what excuse do we have? She didn't have a robust <laughs> understanding of justification by faith. She couldn't articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. All she did was tell people about her own interaction with Jesus. She said, this is what Jesus did. Come and meet Him. That's all she did. And people were like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. Let's meet Jesus. If you know enough to believe in Jesus, You certainly don't have to tell the world about him. Let me encourage you. Our job is not to convince or convict. It's not our job to change their heart. Our job is to tell them who Jesus is and what he has done. That's all this woman does. And look at how God used it. An entire town based on the testimony of this woman. For some of us, this does come more naturally. And praise God for that. That is a gift. It's a blessing that some are gifted in such a way. But for those of you who it doesn't come quite as easy for, it, that's okay. You don't need to feel guilty over that. You're not a worse Christian for that. But it's also not an excuse to avoid this command of Jesus. And on a practical level, we don't find one specific way to share the gospel in the Bible find several different approaches. In the Old Testament, Jonah rolls up to Nineveh and says, hey, repent or you're all gonna die. That's it. Uh, in Acts, we see Peter sharing the gospel through preaching. Philip is, is explaining the, the Old Testament to an Ethiopian man. Paul uses logic and, and argument to converse with the Greek thinkers and philosophers to engage them with the gospel. And obviously here in John, we see a woman saying, hey, Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did and who he is. So, I'm not saying we all got to run out of here and start preaching and screaming in the streets. What I'm saying is that that I think all of us need to consider whether we are overlooking opportunities to share the gospel. Are there opportunities for you that, that we ignore on a regular basis? People that we see frequently but we're just not taking that step because we're too busy with everything else going on. Just like disciples, we are living in a time of spiritual harvest. And we've been given this incredible task of telling others about Jesus, leading others to him. And church, there's so many people in the community around us. People sitting right under our noses that desperately need the living water that Jesus offers if we're not intentional we won't see it we won't find those opportunities if we're going to be obedient to the lord we must participate in this spiritual harvest but to do that we have to be intentional we have to be praying for it looking for chances to tell people about the goodness of jesus and his gospel and i think that's the big idea of of chapter four That the church must tell the world who Jesus is and what he has done. That is our primary goal. Tell the world who Jesus is and what he has done. That's how we gather fruit for eternal life, how we participate in this harvest. And again, it's okay for us to adopt different approaches to how we accomplish it. Some people have a knack for just striking up a conversation about faith with anybody they meet, total strangers. Some don't. Some do really well with more of a prepared approach, kind of like what we did at the farmer's market uh, last month. And some do better, kind of building that relationship and taking that, that relational approach. The Lord can work in all of these. The important thing is that we simply don't sit back and miss what's right in front of us. We have to take that step. We have to be serious about going and letting people know who Jesus is because they need him just as badly as you and I do. And I know it looks on a surface much easier for the Samaritan woman, right? Because she could say, hey, come, I'm gonna actually take you to Jesus. And they walk over and they have to talk to Jesus. And I understand that, but that's why it's all more important for the church to look and act like Jesus.
1: We are his representatives
0: here on earth. And if we look no different than the world. When we talk about how good Jesus is, and how he transforms us, and how he gives us true satisfaction in life, and then they come in here, And they see a lifeless congregation, and I'm not saying we are that. But if we are that, then what incentive do they have? We look no different. As we tell the world about Jesus, we have to show them what He is like as well. Right? The reality is that in our community, most of the people have probably heard some portion of the gospel, if not the gospel in its entirety. They know we're not living in an unreached country. There is access to the gospel. There's 30, I don't know, many churches in the city of Melbourne. They still need to hear the gospel, but they also need to see the difference it makes. They need to see how different a community of spirit-filled believers is from the rest of the world. Because when they see the transformative power of the gospel demonstrated in the church, it, it gives far greater weight to the church's testimony. I chose this passage for my, my candidate sermon because it captures a part of what I hope will continue to be an emphasis here at this church. Whether the Lord moves me into the role of the pastor, he has something else for the world. Our purpose statement is to exalt God, to edify his people, and to evangelize the lost. These are the primary purposes of Christ's church. Those first two, exalting and edifying, Those tend to come a little bit more easily for churches. But all three of these are vital responsibilities for a faithful church. And I love the efforts that we have made over the past year to to get out and to engage our community with the gospel. But if we're not intentional, those efforts won't continue. We must continue to keep that in front of us, to keep our sights set outward as well. Because if not, as we grow and as we add ministries, We're only going to look inward. We're going to stop being remotely concerned with those around us who need Jesus. And don't misunderstand God. There needs to be an inward focus. That's a good thing. The regular gathering of the body should be priority to exalt God and edify his people. We need effective ministries that move believers to greater levels of spiritual maturity. But that can't keep us from looking out as well. Our focus on those things can't keep us from going out and reaping spiritual fruit. Right? Our, our goal here is not to have the, the best ministries. We can get the biggest. church. We want to run things with excellence, but we want to see growth here because people are being transformed through the power of the gospel. Amen. We want God's name to be proclaimed and magnified in the city of Belleville. That's why we want redemption to grow. Not so we can brag to our friends about how cool our churches is, how we're the best worship team or anything like that. Our mission is to see people transformed through the power of the gospel. And that means evangelism is more than just sending money to missionaries every month. That's a great thing. But each of us are called to active participation in this harvest. That means we're living on mission every single day, praying regularly, to, to, for, for, to open doors and opportunities for us to build redemptive relationships where we can share the gospel with people. Even now as, as I'm closing, uh, I hope that you guys will consider who is it that I'm seeing on a regular basis that I see every week but I've never stopped to talk with them about Jesus. And what would it look like for you to approach that conversation? The community around us is a field we don't want to miss it. We must take seriously this command that Jesus has given us. We have to go, and we have to tell others who Jesus is and the incredible salvation in the office Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word and that, that all these years later, it's still so applicable to your people. Lord, I'm grateful for this church, I'm grateful for the way that you've used us already in this city, but I pray that that would continue. Lord, I pray that you would make much of your name in this community through this body. But I pray that you would give us a heart to share the gospel and see lives transformed. And this week as we go, help us to be watching and ready when those opportunities arise. And when they do, Lord, we ask that you would give us the boldness to speak and the boldness to testify all that Jesus has done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.